0: What a relevant prayer to call out to be satisfied before it's too late with the Spirit of God, the living Word of God. Satisfy us. I I would contend that it's a, a worthy prayer because the problem isn't that we're a people who can't be satisfied. The problem, in fact, is that we're a people who are far too easily satisfied. This time of year, we have some days that we enjoy more than other days. And we can easily become entirely satisfied with a day of good weather. And that prayer, satisfy us from the start of the day throughout the day in Christ alone. Take your Bible, please, if you have it with you, and turn to Hebrews chapter 1. Hebrews chapter 1. And we'll... Begin even where we were last week, and we'll read up through verse 9. Hebrews chapter 1, this is the word of the Lord. Long ago, and many times, in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, He has spoken to us by His Son, whom He appointed the heir of all things, through whom also He created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God, The exact imprint of his nature. He upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sin, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. For to which of the angels did God ever say, You are my son? is forever and ever. The scepter of uprightness is your scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. This is the word of the Lord. May he bless its reading. You can be seated. Children, you can be dismissed to Children's Church. wonder, as we sit here today, what are those things that tempt us to go back from our first dependence on Christ? The the Hebrew people had experienced some pretty impressive religious events. They had a a plethora of interactions with prophets and with angels. Can, Can you imagine having an interaction with an angel. Having an angel, a heavenly being, come to stand in front of you and communicate, give you a message of promise and hope, or maybe be the provision for your protection. They had experienced those things, and they were impressive. They were memorable. They seemed dependable. And so the Hebrew people seem to be tempted to maybe once again adore and depend on angels and I would suggest today that the reason why sometimes we are vulnerable to depending on lesser things than Jesus is because of the way we feel need what do you need today what do you need this week what do you need in parenting what do you need in provision economics what do you need what do you need what do you need and the way we perceive need felt need will probably open some gates to what we think will provide for us so you cannot return to a dependence on something other than christ even though we may be tempted to just that. And I thought about it as I wrote the sermon, I, I don't think I'm speaking to a people who would stand up next Sunday and say, well, I have an announcement to make. From this point forward, I, I want you all to know that I actually depend on blank instead of Jesus. I don't, I don't think I'm guarding you from that literal betrayal of your testimony. But We all have a spoken theology and a lived theology. We all have what we confess we believe in, what we depend on. And then we we all have what we act like we depend on. That's really what I want to provide, is strength to depend, not just in our big public confession, I trust Jesus, but Tuesday. And Thursday and Saturday of this week, when things you hope in seem to be crumbling, will your joy testify? Stuff will come and go, but I trust in Jesus. That's the point. And the title I've given to this sermon is Angels and the Only Begotten Son. In our text, there's something that becomes undeniably relevant and true. The author of Hebrews has a deep burden to show the superiority of the new covenant over the old covenant, which means the superiority of the gospel over the law, the superiority of the mediator of the new covenant, Jesus, over those old religious priests. His purpose for us is to persuade us not to fall back from Christ to things that are obsolete in religion that warning becomes clear in Hebrews 3, and it reaches its most pungent warning statement in Hebrews 6. In fact, would you turn to Hebrews 6 and look at verse 4 with me? Hebrews 6, verse 4. It is impossible in the case of those who have been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gifts and have shared in the Holy Spirit, have tasted the goodness of the Word of God and the power of the age to come, and then fall away to be restored again to repentance. Since, in fact, what they are doing in their trusting and untrusting and trusting and untrusting, in fact, what they are doing is crucifying once again the Son of God their own own harm and holding him up to contempt that's a powerful warning statement that we're headed toward and it comes out of the burden from this author that we who have come to the living word not turn back not say but there's some other things that i really think will provide for my felt need but to see christ only any hope or faith apart from Christ alone is really futile. It's pointless. Like, I don't—what what are you hoping? You hope in your health? I'm, I really take care of myself. I eat a lot of greens. I'm not talking about me personally, but you might say. <laughs> I really take care of myself. I eat a lot of greens. I, I bike. I picked on bikers a few weeks ago. So you bikers, you're—man, you're healthy people. That's great and, and you, you, you go see your doctor regularly, you're honest with your doctor, when your doctor says, you got anything that's alarming? You don't go, no. Because you do, and you tell them. And so you have all these things, and you think, I'm pretty healthy. Or, or wow, I've, I've worked really hard, and I've invested some funds, and the places I've invested those funds are really just multiplying returns. And so I, I'm really, really comfortable financially. And whatever, whatever it is that you are hoping in, And you say, yeah, Jesus too. I mean, I go to church on Sunday. But my week is endured because of these other things? I just want you to know that that's futile. And the author here gives us three reasons to understand why any of those other things would be futile. Because first, the very name that Jesus Christ has is superior to everything else. The station that Jesus Christ holds is superior to everything else. And the reign and the rule of Christ is absolutely sovereign. That's my sermon this morning. I'm going to walk through those three points. The name, the station, and the rule and reign as sovereign. Okay? Let me pray, and then we'll walk through it. Father, I pray to you in uh, humble dependence. This text is so wonderful there is in me a temptation to to speak it with enough enthusiasm to communicate its wonder and that would be totally deficient. So I pray to you in dependence, knowing that what we need now is illumination that comes out of your word as your spirit teaches us. Thank you for the promise and thank you for the faithfulness to that promise. So that today as we come to your word, shape us. Not just to confess these things and and to nod that Jesus is better, but to be equipped, to be taught, to obey everything commanded and go out from here and function to the praise of your glory, confessing in our, in our daily life that Jesus is better. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, verse 4 and 5, the author starts by saying, the very name of Christ testifies to you that he's better. In this case, he is better than angels. The argument is very straightforward. Jesus is superior to angels. Christ's supremacy is founded on what God called him, son of God. And to point that out from the Old Testament, because see the, the potential religious people who are reading this go, what's this newfangled Christianity all about, right? They're, that's their problem. And they're like, we have, we have angels, and we have prophets, and we have Moses and Aaron, and so that's the issue. So what does the author do? He says, well, let's go back and see what the ancient testimony says. And he takes us here to two places. So if you, if you would like, you can turn your Bible to Psalm 2, which I would recommend, and 2 Samuel 7. In Psalm 2, we read this. I will tell of the decree... The Lord said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. The author quotes this. Psalm 2 is what we call a messianic psalm. Referring to from the text, we see in Psalm 2, 2, the anointed one. It's a messianic psalm. It's a psalm about the coming Messiah. The question that I have, and maybe you have, is when... Is Jesus endowed with the title, Begotten Son? Because see, the Messianic Psalm says, Today, in verse 7, I have begotten you. Which is a really relevant question to me. You remember last week I said, Boy, if you have any Jehovah's Witness neighbors, we would love to have them with us for this study to see this emphasis of Christ over every other created thing, including angels. Angels. So if Christ is some created thing before or at some other time than the angels, then how exactly is he superior? So when the text says, today I have begotten you, we, we want to see the significance of what it means that he is the begotten. John three sixteen. God loved the world so much so that he gave his one and only, or his one begotten son. In what way does Christ inherit the title Son of God? Several times when he's given this title, this is my beloved Son, uh, at his baptism, when the angel announces his birth. But the question that I have that I want to spend about five minutes answering is, what is the today? When the Father... announces or has begotten the Son. If Jesus is eternally the Son of God, or eternally God the Son, what do we make of this statement, today I have begotten you? I think the author of Hebrews knows well that the best way to interpret Scripture is with a collection of Scripture. So let's look. In the case of Psalm 2-7, We are helped because Paul also preaches a sermon where he quotes from Psalm 2-7. And he says this in Acts 13, preaching in Antioch, he says, We bring you good news, that what God promised to the fathers, this he has fulfilled to us, their children, by raising Jesus. He's promised, and it's become obvious, by raising Jesus. As also it is written in the second Psalm, You are my son, today I have begotten you. This explains that there's a significance to Christ's resurrection and the declaration of the Son. Paul builds on this in Romans 1-4, writing that Jesus was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the Spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ, our Lord. So, in quoting from Psalm 2, there are two cross-references that tell us, if you want to know when it became most obvious that He is the Son of God, He was announced to be the Son of God, look at the resurrection. James Montgomery Boyce writes this, "...the resurrection of Jesus Christ establishes for us the doctrine of our Lord's deity." When he lived upon the earth, Jesus claimed to be equal with God and stated that God would raise him from the dead three days after his resurrection. The resurrection is God's seal of approval on Christ's claim to divinity, end quote. Jesus is announced to be the Son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by His resurrection from the dead. So, what do we do with Psalm 2 7? Today I call you Son. What is the day? Here's my answer The today, when Jesus is begotten of the Father, is the eternal, unchanging today of God's triune omnipresence. So, ask God, what did you do yesterday? You mean eternity? Why well, bestowed the name Son on Jesus. When? Yeah. That, that's my point. Let me read it again. But today, when Jesus is begotten of the Father, is the eternal, unchanging today of God's triune omnipresence. He is every when. He has proclaimed Him to be the Son and proven that that announcement is valid at His resurrection. Now, the author of Hebrews goes on and cites now 2 Samuel 7. The second citation in our text comes from 2 Samuel 7. 2 Samuel 7 is a, a narrative account of when David is in Jerusalem and he sees the ark coming in and he wants to, he wants to build for the ark, the, the, the symbol of God's presence with his people. He wants to build for the ark a great home. And so he goes to Nathan, the prophet, and he says, I want to build a great temple for the ark. And Nathan says, that sounds smart. It does, doesn't it? It sounds smart. But then God says to Nathan, wait, go back and tell David no. And that's what we quote from here. 2 Samuel chapter 7, I'm going to read 13 through 16. God says to David, you will have a son, and he will build a house for my name. I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father, he will be to me a son. That's nice, isn't it? I mean, being told you're going to have kids and grandkids, that's good. And, they're, and God's going to work with those kids and grandkids. That's, that's great. What does that have to do with Hebrews 1? Well, we've got to keep reading. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with stripes of the son of men. My steadfast love will never depart from him. As I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you, And your house, David, and your kingdom, your throne will exist forever. Your throne shall be established without an end. Okay, wow. Like, I'm glad to have kids and grandkids and that God's going to care about them, but wait, I'll have an everlasting throne through my family line? Well, what's that all about? Well, like most... Messianic prophecies there's a near fulfillment and a greater fulfillment, and the near fulfillment is Solomon, and that's great, but obviously, Solomon ends and his throne ends. But there is one of David who reigns without end. I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. The point then is to which of the angels did God ever say these things? And the answer is none of them. Christ must be recognized by us in our truest conviction as better than even angels. The Hebrew people had experienced a lot at the hand of angels. Angels stand as a symbol of protection and provision do you remember back in exodus maybe not and i won't ask you to raise your hand if you remember because i would be embarrassed how much we've forgotten about the book of exodus but do you remember in the book of exodus all the way back in the first part when they're standing on the shore of the red sea and the bible says the pillar went out in front of them but behind them there was an angel to protect them So just in our most recent study, we see that one, and then there are are two other references to an angel appearing to protect the people in their moment of great need. To do what was impressive. The stuff of legend. I always get a little nervous when I think, let me try to use an example of something heroic that you might have read or seen in cinema. Because as soon as I start thinking about, oh, that's a good example, I think I should not tell people about that movie. (laughs) Or, oh, that sports figure, what a legend. Wait, don't bring him up, there's a lot of bad stuff there. But I'm going to do it anyway. So one example I would have is, one of my daughters just loves just loves the the documentary The Last Dance about the Chicago Bulls. Now there's two versions of Last Dance you can watch. One of them is on TV and it's okay to watch as long as you don't mind the beeping. The other version you can rent and you should not watch it, okay? So one of my daughters just loves this. She's, she's She's just captivated every time. Like, wow. This is extraordinary heroism of legend. Imagine if that basketball player inspires such dependence and awe in us? Imagine the way an angel who had stood between you and Pharaoh would kind of be respectable, admired, adored, worshipped. And so the author of Hebrews says, I know that your people have seen angelic power but don't for a second assume that you should turn back to that forsaking Christ the angel had become synonymous with God's announcing provision blessing the people and protecting them when the people's faith began to fail what did they do in exodus They've lost the symbol that God's going to take care of them. Where's the strong symbol? Moses. He's been up there in that cloud, and we assume he's dead. Oh, we really need stuff that reminds us that we're going to be okay. Let's build something. And that's sort of the same way with angels for them. Shockingly, people will still turn to angels today. I... I was driving on Monday knowing that the next text was about Jesus is better than angels. And I happened to be, I, I don't know about you, but I, I scan through the radio. I almost never listen to anything for more than a couple of seconds. I just scan. I drive and I scan. Sometimes I watch the road, usually just scan. <laughs> and I was scanning and I came across a religious conversation, which I, I learned later was uh, relevant radio. Some of you may have heard relevant radio in our area. And, and I, so I stopped. And I heard... A story that is so helpful for this week's study. The teacher said, when I was in Catholic school, we would sit down at lunch and the nun would say, now make sure as you sit down that you leave room for your guardian angel. And he said, I think that that was their way of reminding us that angels exist. And he said, but I have grown up knowing that it is a good thing that angels are guarding us. And he said this, and I quote, I don't know about you, but I pray to my angel all the time. I need all the help I can get. End quote. And I would say to that fellow person, Jesus is better. Don't get confused by your felt need Ah, something bad is happening right now. I need a guardian angel. You need Jesus. Because I have concluded that nothing in this life, in all of its negative, discouraging disappointment, is worthy to be compared with the glory that is bought for me by the blood of Jesus. Unfortunately, we are often tempted like this to return to worship what is lesser because somehow it touched our felt need. Who would you turn to for refuge when God has announced on Jesus you are my son in whom I'm well pleased. And once and for all sealed that identity by raising him from the dead. Number one he has a better name. Number two, he has a better station. Verses 6 and 7. The second argument for Christ's superiority, the angels are commanded to worship the Christ. So here in verse 6 and 7. And again, verse 6, Hebrews 1. When he brings the firstborn into the world, he says, let all God's angels worship him. So if you're wondering, should I go back and, and... trust in angels and swear my allegiance and all my faith in angels and he says well they worship the christ so wouldn't you rather trust in the christ who the angels worship when he brings the firstborn into the world this refers to the coming of jesus the first advent perhaps the the most significant part of the first christmas is the choir of angels singing praises in the field. In the book of Revelation, Revelation chapter 5, we read this, angels forever worship the Son, who is a lion and a lamb seated on a throne. So angels are forever singing praise to the Christ. The writer of Hebrews speaks of the Christ as the firstborn. The firstborn. Now, I don't know about you, but I have had evangelists come to my door and say, The Bible says that Jesus is born. He's the firstborn. So there is one God, and that one God birthed Jesus. They would try to tell me. And they would say, Look, there are places like Romans 8. Would you turn your Bibles to Romans 8? Romans 8 says that Jesus is the firstborn. Let's go to Romans 8. And let's look at verse. Uh, let's start in. Let's start in 29. So here's the promise Romans 8, verse 29. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son. So, God, in the covenant of redemption, declared all those who are of Christ will grow to look like Christ. Wow. Why? Why why can't we just get out of hell and get into heaven? There's a reason. Verse 29. All those who are of Christ, all those who are redeemed in His blood, will be conformed to the image of His Son in order that, most of you might know or recognize the term hinna clause. That's a hinna clause. Purpose. Why would I be conformed to the image of His Son? That the Son might be the firstborn among many brothers so the son becomes chronologically firstborn when i am conformed to his likeness that's not true but by all of us being transformed into the image of the one whom we adore and god the father is honoring our likeness of him is his glory because imitation is the highest form of flattery that is directly from romans 8:29 verse 7 cites psalm 104 verse 4 i'll read of the angels he says he makes his angels winds and his ministers a flame of fire this is a description of the angels as servants listen we shouldn't diminish just how impressive an angel is right a minister of wind and fire you know you know that isaiah chapter 6 when Isaiah walks into the temple and goes, oh, you have all those angels flying around? Six wings they have. Two wings are covering their face, two wings are covering their feet, and two wings are flying. And they're shouting, holy, holy, holy. So much is the bellowing of their worshipful proclamation that the temple shakes on its foundation. I'm not saying, listen, stop with the, stop with the, um, Oh, what are the little figurines? Uh, they're little... What? Precious moments. Yeah, I'm, I'm not saying, hey, I want you to stop being tempted to trust in the little precious moments figurine of an angel. I'm not saying that. I'm saying the angels of the Bible. So I, I'm trying to validate the author's concern. Like, I know that you've seen some amazing and life-changing things from angels, but understand... They are inferior to the superior Christ. Don't ever turn back from Christ. In Revelation chapter 19, John saw an angel. Angel comes and tells him, write these things and John falls down and the angel says, stop, stop! That's not how we do things. Stand up. You cannot worship me. Angel cannot be worshipped, which by the way just in case maybe your Jehovah's Witness friend didn't come with you, um, or maybe they are here, welcome. Uh, you know when Jesus is in the boat with his disciples and he speaks, and the the weather obeys his word. The Bible tells us that the disciples fall down and they proskeneo worship him. In edited versions of scriptural testimony. The word worship has been replaced by the word obeisance. Yeah, Jesus speaks and the wind and the waves obey his will, and then the people fall down and obeisance. Oh, well, you should see a doctor. I don't know what that is. It means to go, cool. That's what it means. So it means to take what is to be given to Christ, praskana, or worship, and say, wow good for you you spoke and the weather obeyed because you're trying to diminish who christ is angels cannot be worshipped therefore when the son of god is worshipped it testifies to his superior station and the angels are to worship the son rather than worshiping angels we should follow their example and worship the son lastly number three not only is His name superior, not only is His station superior as one to be worshipped, but God the Son is superior in reign and rule. Christ is superior because of His divine sovereignty. Verses 8 and 9. This is where my prayer before. This is magnificent, and I'm tempted to be enthusiastic to try to tell you how magnificent this is, and that's, that's futile, it's shallow, it's not going to get it done. The Spirit of God has to illuminate this truth in all of its relevance to us. Verse 8. But of the Son, he says, Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of righteousness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. I have to move quickly. Listen to these two verses the angels are called to servanthood the son has sovereignty the citation that this comes from is psalm 45 verse 6 and 7 of the son he says your throne O god is forever and ever the scepter of righteousness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness, hated, wicked. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. Christ's enthronement and sovereign rule is central to what the Old Testament tells the reader to look for. The Old Testament says a king is coming and his rule will know no end. Psalm Isaiah, Luke... Listen, listen. Isaiah chapter 9, which we read in, in the opening. Isaiah's hope for his generation was an enthroned Messiah. When the angel comes to Mary and announces the birth, he says, he will reign and his kingdom will have no end. Luke chapter 1. Now, here's the one I want to take you to, though. It's this Psalm 45. Okay, I would recommend you go to Psalm 45. Psalm 45 is a wedding song it's depicting a royal wedding a wedding between a king and his princess and it starts look at verse 13 and 14 we'll start with the bride preparing for her marriage to the king and it says this of the bride all-glorious. So Psalm 45, 13, in case I lost anybody. The verse says, All-glorious is the princess in her chamber, with robes interwoven with gold, and many-colored robes she is led to the king. Wow. Wow. What a bride. Her dress has gold woven into it, many-colored robes. And she's being led to the king. Beautiful picture, right? Look at verses 1 through 5. The psalm explains in verses 1 through 5 that the bride is celebrating her groom's royal splendor, majesty, strength, and dignity. So the bride is dressed the way she is because she knows the part she's playing in this union to that king. Oh, I better better really come early and get dressed as well as i can because i'm going to be married to him and then let's keep going verse six the psalm has this like wedding and there's this bride and there's this groom and then verse six the psalm suddenly just exclaims your throne O god is forever and ever what who now the groom, the bridegroom, is said to have a throne that is forever and ever. So what is this wedding psalm? It's a psalm of Christ. It's a messianic psalm. We are clothed in beauty and splendor because the one we're going to be united with is royal, majestic, strong, and dignified. His throne as God is forever and ever. And then let's keep going. Verse 7. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. There's... It's hard to imagine a clearer reference to God the Son than... Someone referred to as God, your God, bestowed upon you this title. God, your God has called you son. It, when I come to texts like Psalm 45, I think about Jesus after his resurrection. He's he seems to be unrecognizable to his friends. And they walk with him on a road called the road to Emmaus, and they walk with him on a road, and they're in awe because he tells them how everything of the old testament pertained to jesus christ and they're like that wedding story in psalm 45 was about the messiah yeah yeah the the tabernacle in the wilderness was about the messiah the garment of the high priest was about the messiah yeah all all that the garden the serpent crusher all that and i i come to psalm 45 and i think your throne, O God, is forever and ever a proclamation right in the middle of this beautiful wedding ceremony saying it is God, your God, who has anointed you. Not only does this text prove the importance of Old Testament prophecy about the Messiah, it also emphasizes the Trinity. It is stunningly asserting that Christ is the triune Messiah the true Messiah in whom righteousness will come to reign is one with God himself and then listen to the character quality of the king being described in Psalm 45 the scepter of righteousness is the scepter of your kingdom you have loved righteousness and hated wickedness This is why Jesus is exalted. If there was contempt, if there was guilt found in him, if there was sin found in him, then there would be no resurrection, right? uh, could Could I just plant a question for you to take with you after you leave today? If Jesus hadn't been crucified... Where would you be today? I don't don't know. Indiana? I don't know. Arizona? Not dead. You know that? The wage of sin is, say it with me, death. death. I, I only bring that up for you to contemplate to say, who else? Who else? Who else has walked the earth without sin? Who else? No one. If they didn't have sin, they'd be here now. We could go ask them. You didn't have sin? No one. And I mean no one. Not his dad or his mom. This is why Jesus is exalted. So what we have is the Old Testament testimony... Proving that this author of Hebrews is correct in challenging the Christian. Don't turn back. His name is better, his station is higher, his reign and his rule are sovereign and superior. Don't turn back. So I want to finish then by saying this to you. If all of that is true, if the testimony of Scripture is true, if you believe that it's true, the Old Testament, New Testament have testified Jesus is better than angels. Then to who would you turn today for righteousness? There's a time coming when everyone must give an account. day is appointed to man wants to die, and then the judgment. Friends, we will stand before a throne and be judged. And I'm going to offer you three possibilities. I can only think of three right now. Possibility number one. You can stand there on your own merits. I am a pretty good person. I have done more good than bad. You ready? You ready to stand there and say to the eternal righteous judge, kurios, kurios, Jesus. Uh, Matthew 7, by the way, in case you got confused that I just jumped from God the Father to God the Son. Um, Matthew 7. Many will say to me in that day of judgment, Kurios, Kurios, did we not do many good deeds in your name? So they'll stand before the judge, Jesus. And you could say, I've done more good than bad. And I just want to say quickly, please understand the subtle suggestion that you made, probably accidentally, was, So I still can't figure out why you died on that cross. I could have just done better. You understand that? You would say to the risen king who judges from the throne, yeah, you kind of made a mistake by dying. I've done more good than bad, and I deserve to be here. I don't know why you did that. I don't think, in fact, I'm sure that's not going to go well. I'll give you another option. Maybe let's take it right from Hebrews. You could go and you could say, there are these heavenly powers that are with me. I call out, I I looked up this week, how many books are sold on Amazon with the title Guardian Angel. Over 10,000 books sold on Amazon with the title Guardian Angel. I made the mistake of doing a Google search how to, what did I search? How to something, how to, how to get in touch with your guardian angel. Oh, that was crazy. That was a long search result of lunacy. Of course, meditation is a big part of it. You know, dark rooms and something about mushrooms. I don't know, frogs. Okay. So, so you could go and stand before the throne and you could say, You know, I've had this guardian angel... He was here a minute ago. And you could say, I deserve to get in. I've I've got this angel, and I've trusted in that angel. every time I've had a need, I've called out to that angel. Every time something bad happens, I think, come on, angel, get me out of this. So here I am, me and my angel. You could do that, Hebrews 1, 5 through 9. Or you could go and say, the only reason I get in is you. The only reason I pass judgment is you in my place on the cross, conquering my death, raising from the dead, once and for all seated with the Father. You, your righteousness being my righteousness, my sin being on you. You're the only way. That's the point. Say, your name is better. Your station to be worshipped is better. Your rule and reign is sovereign and without end. You're the only reason. We cannot return to a dependence on something other than Christ. In word or in deed, friends. In word or in deed. It's one thing to acknowledge Christ's greatness and worthiness. It's another thing altogether to come to Him as your confident conclusion of salvation. Would you turn with me one more time to a text from Galatians? Galatians chapter 3 it is one thing to say with me this morning, yeah, Jesus is better. It's another thing altogether to come to him as a confident conclusion. Remember last week, the title from verses 1 through 4 is the final word of God. Like if if you want to know the whole plan of salvation, there is one punctuating word. Jesus is the final word of God. That's What I want to read for you from Galatians chapter 3, verse 1 through 3. O foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed uh, portrayed and crucified. Let me ask you only this. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by the hearing with faith? Are you then so foolish that having begun by the Spirit... A heartfelt, confident conclusion Jesus is my hope in life and death. Have you begun by the Spirit, and now do you think you're surviving by the flesh? Do do you think, as Gary said earlier, do you think that you only needed Christ for that initial salvation? But now, you need something else like an angel to step in. You need something else like hard work to intervene. I I, I just want to say to you, if you're not already trusting in Christ as the last word for your hope in life and death, please do today. All of your hope, all of your confidence, all of your expectation placed on Him then i want to say one last word to the church did you hear that jesus is anointed with oil even beyond that of his companions did you hear that that's how he finished in verse 9 jesus is anointed with oil jesus is raised above all other stations anointed with the oil of gladness beyond your companions who are jesus companions I want to say this if you, if you listen to verse 5 you heard the word of the father say to the son you are my son and I, I would invite you to understand that you in Christ hear that same announcement if you're in Christ you hear the father say you are my son or daughter that's us in Christ we hear that sweet announcement we are co-heirs of God the Son. And then in verse 9, <clears throat> God your God has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. That's us. We are the companions. We are the companions of whom God is speaking. Colossians 1:18, in his resurrection he is the firstborn of a new creation in which we belong. By faith, or to which we belong by faith, a new creation. We are this new citizenship that Isaiah mentions in chapter 61. The Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor, to grant to those who mourn, to give them a beautiful headdress instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, the garment of praise instead of a faint spirit. "...that they may be called oaks of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that He may be glorified." When we read these things about the Father being pleased with the Son, calling Him Son, when we read that His kingdom is without end, and when we understand that ours is union with Him, all those things are yes and amen, all the kingdom, all the rule, all the righteousness is yes and amen in Christ. He's the final word. I don't, in stated confession, or in wavering joy, go back to anything else. Christ is better. Let's pray. Father, I am thankful that you've given us this text. I know that there are perils, and there are trials, where we often seek for some answer to what is ailing us, that is apart from Christ. I know that it is common for us to take the final word of Jesus and use it like some sort of launching point to start our own little man-centered communities of hope and trust. So thank you for the word that brings us back and states from all of the testimony of Scripture, old and new, That Jesus is better. That he is to be the last word of our hope and faith. That in him, the promise of a new nation, a new people, an everlasting kingdom ruled in righteousness is yes and amen. Thank you, Father, for the word. I pray that your spirit would use it to guard us from the temptation of our own perceived wants and needs to be steadfast and unmovable, always abounding in Christ. In Jesus' name, amen.